0: Three minor judges, and like I said, we may get through a little early, but uh, I don't think anybody will complain too much about that. Uh, Joshua 1 really is a summary of the conquest, but it's interesting how it it comes across when we read it in Joshua 1. The first 21 verses really talk about conquests, and we're going to see a map in a minute. It'll help see this. Really talks about the southern part of the the kingdom and, and as a general rule all everything is successful you know the one exception in verse 19 we see that uh, there was difficulty in uh, fighting the, the they're victorious in the hills but not on the plain and the reason is given that these folks had iron chariots you know we we think about military technology as cruise missiles and things like that but in, in 1400 B.C. or 1200 B.C., iron was a big weapon. If you had iron and your, and your opponents had bronze, you had a huge strategic advantage. So here we're told that was the one failure. But as you, as you read down and, and, you know, if you've got your Bibles, you might look uh, here. The rule of thumb for all these is that, is that they're unsuccessful. Now, they, they are, or I should say, partially successful. They tend to not be able to conquer the people. The people end up serving them, but they're not eradicated. They're not driven out. Now, uh, next, the next session of classes, Terry and Hilton are going to be talking about First and 2 Samuel. And, you know, we're, we're going to get into the period of the kings and eventually into a divided kingdom. And, and this really, I think, sort of, uh, I hesitate to use the word prophesy, but it, it's an early indication that those northern kingdoms are going to be more prone to turning away from God. You know, the, the fact that they don't conquer, they leave these people among them, they're their servants, but they're still there, they're still influencing them. So, so again, we see the, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, the faithful kingdom, being very successful in their conquest, while the tribes that are associated with the northern kingdom aren't. Uh, uh the one exception pot, but even this is is not a, a complete uh success We're told, the house of joseph we'll talk a minute about what that means they go up against bethel god's with them and and uh typically as, as we so often see there's spies involved man uh again think back to jericho remember the the spies going to jericho uh here that a man helps them out. They say, show us the way into the city. We'll deal kindly with you. Show them the way in the city. Put to the sword. They let him and his family go. Uh, but when we saw Jericho, what, what happened with Rahab? Her family followed God. They became part, really part of, of God's people. And, and if you remember, Rahab gave a great testimony as to how she believed in God and how she trusted God, believed in His power. This man apparently, he, he just says, I'll show you the way. But so instead of this man going, you know, with, uh, becoming a, a believer, he goes into the land of the Hittites, builds a city, and renames it Luz, and it's still there. So again, it, they're successful, but they're not successful, Paul. Is it Judges or Joshua? That should be Judges, I'm sorry. Yeah, so again, even, even when they're successful here, the, you know, a new city, you know, they, they destroy Luz, but now a new Luz arises. So again we're going to see generally these northern tribes aren't successful the house of joseph uh, uh, it's used i found one time where it referred to uh, ephraim and manasseh but i'm I'm more uh, of the idea that it's really talking about the northern tribes as a whole and here you can see uh, joshua's told divide the house in seven portions the judah's territory to the south and then the house of joseph Meaning all these northern tribes, and again uh, in Amos, it's you know uh, seek the Lord and live. He'll break out against the house of Joseph like fire. Again, the idea of northern Israel. that's going to be this the kingdom, and this is uh, I took out some lines here, but this he starts off as a as a con- condemnation of Israel. So, and this is Amos, of course, in the time when there is a divided kingdom. There's South Judah and North Israel, and so he gives a. a uh, proclamation against Israel here and refers to it as the House of Joseph. So the House of Joseph is probably those northern tribes. Anyway, I mentioned, just most of you have seen these maps. They're in the back of your Bibles, I'm sure. This is, that, this is sort of the pre-conquest view. All this area is the Canaanites. You can see we've got Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites. Here's Gilgal. This is where the initial entry was made into the Promised Land. Jericho's down here, Ai. Uh, Hazor is up here, uh, you can see the various cities, Jerusalem down here, Bethlehem, so this is the city sort of before the conquest, uh, we didn't go into how it was divided up, but this is, you see these maps, they're all similar, but they're all a little different in terms of what, where the tribes were, but generally again, Benjamin, Judah down here, the southern tribes, and here's the northern kingdom, and again, when it's finally divided up, uh, Here's South Judah, here's North Israel, again, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and so forth, Syrians. So, really, we're talking about, uh, you know, these people were successful, these people not so much. As we go on, this, the, when I was reading through and preparing, this, this couple, these two verses really hit me. You know, we, uh, so Joshua Joshua's is gone, and we read, the people worshipped Jehovah all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done. So as long as people are around who had that memory, who had that collective memory, they're serving God. But what, what happened? The whole generation was gathered to their ancestors and another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. It's, you know, to me there there's that, that's there, that's important, the difference one generation can make, and and how 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 things can get distorted. You know, it's very typical of almost any organization that you have. I guess what we call the first generation. You know, the founders. And, and it could be anything. It could be a, a, a charitable organization. It could be a, a, a service organization. But you have that, you know, Gen 1. And they, you know, they're the, they're, the, they're the ones who start it. And then right behind them, you know, we have a Gen 2, I will call it. And they know these guys. So they... And they remember what it was all about. They remember, you know, what drove them. They remembered what's important. But then once we get around Gen 3, and after that, we don't have a direct connection back here. And it's easy for things to go off the rails. Um, that, that, that's too strong a word to use for the, uh, what I'm going to talk about. But I think you can see a lot of that in the movement that we're a part of in the Churches of Christ. We were part of what's generally called the American Restoration Movement, the Stone Campbell Movement. Started in the early 1800s in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and two of the the main drivers were Thomas and Alexander Campbell. And probably the the document, more than any other document, that that sort of started us off is called the Declaration and Address, written by Thomas Campbell, the father. (coughs) Declaration and Address. And if you read read the introduction to that, it's all about the evils of division. You know, how the, and it starts off saying the church of God is essentially constitutionally one. But then he goes on and shows how because of, you know, people believing, you know, different things and drawing lines of fellowship, they become divided. And Alexander and Thomas Campbell, let me see if I remember, remember the anti burger, old light seceder Presbyterian Church. And this was a division between the burgers and the anti burgers, there was a division between the new lights and the old lights, and finally the seceders and the non seceders. <laughs> so so they'd, th- this, was, this was this one little group. It was the result of, of three different splits in the Presbyterian Church, mostly in Scotland, and again, and not surprisingly, if you were an anti-Burger, you didn't have any want to have anything to do with a, a Burger. And if you're an old light, you didn't have, any, want to have anything with a new light. It's so a seceder, non-seceder. And what Campbell said is a lot of this is due to creeds, and, and I think we don't appreciate creeds today for what they were. Uh, if, if you go back and look at the history of a creed, and the Nicene, you can use the Apostles' Creed, every word in that, every statement in that creed is an attempt to enforce orthodoxy. Uh, matter of fact, the, big, the great schism that occurred around uh, 1000 AD, where the, we had the, what's the Eastern Orthodox separated from the Roman Catholic Church, about ten thousand, and as as with any church split, there are stated reasons and there are underlying reasons, and there were both in this. But the, the this uh, one of the re- big reasons for this whole split between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church was over a word. Let me see, filioque. Somebody knows it better than me. That occurred in the creed, and it said. It was whether the Holy Spirit proceeded directly from God or whether the Holy Spirit proceeded from God through Christ. That was the... Th- now, any, if, if any of you would, would like to argue either one of those positions today, I'll I'll cede the floor to you right now. I'm not capable of making those arguments. I, but... To, yeah, it actually, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. It yeah. split them. Because it... it of fear that they would minimize the Holy Spirit. Right, yeah. And so you had the Roman Church and the Orthodox Church. They were one before about 1000 B.C. Roughly, I don't know. If I, don't, I should have looked up the date, but I didn't. But the, 1100. 1100, close enough. 100 years. Yeah. But they split over this one, putting this one word in the creed, split them. And, and so going back to Camp, the Campbells, the Campbells looked at this it said we're dividing God's people over over things that we shouldn't be dividing over, and so they had this great idea let's let's just go back and let the Bible be our guide and and they they've uh, there's an expression I think it goes back to a guy named Malthus originally, but it, a lot of the reformers adopted it in essentials, unity in opinions, love. In opinions, freedom, and in all things, love. I didn't get it right, but it's close. That's, what, that's the spirit of it. In other words, there are certain things that we need, We all have to agree on. You know, we have to agree probably the divinity of Christ. You know, you can name a bunch. So there are a lot of things, though, that are opinions. You know, there are things I'm sure if Randall and I sat down, we'd come up with a lot of things where he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, he's still my brother, but that was that wasn't the attitude in the anti-Burger Old Lights of Cedar Presbyterian Church. As a matter of fact, when Alexander Campbell was coming to this country, he he was leaving his his father preached in Ireland. He came to America to preach, and then Alexander Campbell and his family were going to come join him. They left Ireland on a ship. They're shipwrecked off the coast of Scotland, and so he ends up they end up spending the winter. They didn't want to travel. The weather well, was only getting worse. They didn't want to travel in winter. So he spent a winter in, in Scotland. And, the, and a lot of people say the moment in which our movement began is he wanted, he was, they didn't take communion every week, but he wanted to take communion. But before he could take communion, the elders of the church came to him and they tested him on matters of doctrine. They said, Do you believe this about these heretical burgers? <laughs> Do you believe these guys are wrong? or what, you know, they gave him a whole series of questions, and when he had answered all the questions successfully, and I don't have a coin in my pocket, but he was given a lead token with a print on it that was his ticket to take communion. He had to have, if you didn't have that, if you hadn't been shown, if, if they hadn't proved that you, had, that you believed everything the right way, you weren't admitted. And the story is that it came his turn to take communion, And he walked up to the table, and he threw that lead token in the platter and turned around and walked out. Because he said, I'm not going to be a part of a body that's so sectarian that they say anybody who doesn't believe exactly like I do is not a Christian. That's what started our movement. And I think for a couple of generations, we stayed kind of on that path of trying to unify people. And, and, and there was some sort of uh genius in that idea of the bible only you know let's not look at a creed we're just going to look at the bible and the idea is uh you know and it's hard to you know looking back you think well how do they think this That that Campbell was very influenced by a Scottish philosopher named John Locke. And he believed just like you use science to look at nature, you could use scientific methods to look at the Bible. He said, if we do that, we'll all come to agreement. Well, it didn't work out that way. And gradually, you know, you had this, uh, you know, these two themes of unity and following the Bible. And gradually, this one kind of, in the Churches of Christ, this one kind of got lost. And we focused on this one. And we really became insistent that you in, uh, understand the Bible just like I do. You know, that if, that if you don't believe the right thing on this, you, you know, you don't belong. And so, uh, in my mind, I, sadly enough, I think the Churches of Christ sort of became what Alexander Campbell left. <clears throat> that became this very the, uh, now. Churches of Christ have never had a had a written creed, but we've had unwritten creeds. In other words, you better believe this and this and this, or you or you're not accepted. And you you don't have to write it down to be a creed. But anyway, I've kind of taken this out on a limb, but but I think this, this is always a, a danger in any organization, is as we move from that first generation. And from the folks who knew that generation, it's easy to to get lost, and, and 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 sort of the other the other trend we have in institutions is we want to justify ourselves. You know, we want to justify the institution rather than the ideals that brought, started that institution. You know, it's and and the institution wants to preserve itself. I had a, I had a good friend when, I, when I, back when I worked, and he was. He was more cynical than I am. And he said, you know, he said, oh, well, he, said he said, you know, he said, so the, he said, look, any issue. He said, look at the abortion issue. He said, if the abortion issue, he said, neither side wants it to be settled. He said, because organizations have built up that oppose uh, a woman's right to choose or, or whatever you want to call it, or, or who oppose abortion. He said, they've, they've built up, they've gotten organized, There are people who have jobs. If the issue to disappear, they'd disappear. So really what they want to do is they want to keep it hot. They want to keep, they want to keep the fight going because once the fight stops, they're out of job. And, and it's easy for institutions to build themselves up that way. And so I think we always have to remember, let's go back, and again, it's kind of what the restoration movement was about. They said, let's, let's go back to the sources Let's forget these creeds that have built up over 2,000 years, the traditions. Let's go back to the fount, uh, the fount to the to the original source, the, uh, the German word Quelle, spring, which is the source. Let's go back there and let's, let's look at the source. Let's look at what the church was in the first century and try to build on that rather than build on top of what's been built over 2,000 years. So anyway... I, Got off and did a little preaching, hopefully. Any comments on this? Am I off base? Yeah, do, you, do you think these elders were the ones appointed by Moses and his father-in-law said, you got to get organized? Uh, I don't think they would have outlived. It specifically says they outlived Joshua. Well, but Joshua, I mean, that was at the same time. At the same time. They've been uh, peers. Okay. They've been yeah. on their rotation. Okay, but if Moses appointed, okay, okay, yeah, oh, right, he would appoint them, yeah, they might be. Was yeah. It was early in the wilderness. That's what I was trying to remember. When did he appoint the them? Dead. Well, but so, I mean, Joshua and them were peers. Yeah, but Joshua and Caleb, weren't they the only Yeah, they, uh, that, that's the question. They of, if they left Egypt, if they were men in the group that left Egypt, they I'm thinking they they're dead. Everybody over 20. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Is I, I don't again. If the, if they, if these guys were appointed by Moses right before Moses died, that's one thing. But I don't I, I don't remember when they were appointed. Anyway, so so they outlived Joshua. Uh, so again, there's you know the fir- first generation is right on. The second generation kind of gets the message, and the third generation uh, if they if they aren't really careful. It's easy to get off track. But you know, you, as you get older, you think oh, yeah. about, what am I going to leave behind? Yeah. And the only thing you leave behind is your name and memories mm-hmm. that quickly fade, Right. people who knew you fade. And you hope that you instill values that you hold dear right. into the children who will carry them. Exactly. Behind. And that—that's that's, uh, here, is how long will yeah. the value based on. That's, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, the everlasting values are the only thing that's going to survive. In here, yeah. See, they didn't hold and, and and you know one one of the things I want I wonder about you know never know but were, were, were these people did they celebrate the Passover? You know the Passovers. You look at the Passover. That's the occasion, really, the focus on that's, the that's Passover. where you focus on what God's done. You know you you sit the children down. You know and and you remind them, God took us out of Egypt. God delivered us. And I often wonder, <laughs> you know, we know the Passover is celebrated when they first entered the land, when they first entered Cana, but then did it go on every year as a family? You know, and it, it, again, if you look at Passover now, it's, it's not a public event. It's, it's a family event where you sit down with your kids and maybe close family, and you say, you know, the, actually the, the youngest child asks the question, why is this night different from other all other nights? And then the Passover story is told along with the meal. So again, I wonder if these folks kept the Passover. Sally? Um, in Exodus, the third chapter, when when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, mm-hmm. he tells Moses at that time, go and gather the elders of Israel together. So okay. every, at, at any point in time... There, Elders, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, that's what I think. I, I think more than an office, it was a, it, 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 it was, back then. Okay, here's here's the turn to be curmudgeon. Back then, <laughs> they respected their old. Uh, so that's, I can say that because the average age, yeah, was forty. Yeah, if you made it after forty, you were
1: respected.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I think that's that's kind of a critical point here, as we do to remember always is our responsibility to teach our children, and not just get them to school every, once a quarter to church <laughs> when there's when there's not a soccer game when there's not a tournament. So anyway, it's really interesting how the writer has done here. If if we go on starting in Jud- about the partway into Judges two the whole book is presented here in 12 verses the whole story of of judges and we're going to see lots of several cycles but but it's always the same the israelites did what was evil in the sight of the lord worshiped the Baals, uh, you know whatever pick your god that their friend folks around there worshipped, abandoned the lord jehovah the god of their ancestors who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of peoples who were all around them. They were, in, instead of being salt, they were salted. You know, they, they let the other people influence them. And bowed down to them. They provoked Jehovah to anger. They abandoned the Lord and worshipped the Baal and the Astartes. And These are just some of the local divinities. So, so what happens when they do that? They've turned away from God, so God's going to turn away from them. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the power of their enemies all around so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, in other words, whenever they go to war, the hand of Jehovah was against them to bring misfortune as the Lord had warned and sworn to them and they were in great distress. In other words, this shouldn't be a surprise. God told them. He warned them. He swore to them. He made an oath he couldn't go back on. So they turn away. God delivers them to their enemies. Then what happens next? Again, the cycle just repeats The Judges. Then the Lord Jehovah raised up Judges who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. So that's the good news. Yet they did not listen even to their Judges for they lusted after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their ancestors had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not follow their example. Whenever the judge died, they would relapse and behave worse than their ancestors following other gods, worshiping them, bowing down to them. They would not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So, uh, it's interesting. I was, when I was looking at this to try to divide it up, you know, the best I can make of it that these judges saved them, and I think they are probably happy they were no longer under the Ammonites or the Moabites or whoever it was. But already, even even before the judge died, they're they they're turning away from God. It turns out, look again, if if I read it right. They're not not going to worship those gods while the judge is still alive. But their hearts are still back where they were. In other words, their physical situation has changed. They're probably grateful for that. They're not worshiping other gods actively. But they're lusting after them, bowing down to them. And then when the judge judge dies, everything goes back. And uh, yeah worse than their ancestors so every generation it seems to get worse these folks just just can't learn so God's you get here the anger of the Lord was kindled because these people transgressed to my covenant I commanded and would not obey my voice I will no longer drive any of the nations that Joshua left when he died again this idea that their conquest was incomplete and God even goes to says in order to test Israel whether or not they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their ancestors did the Lord had left those nations not driving them out at once and not handing them over to Joshua. So he said there's a reason that they didn't, you know, this is, this is kind of the first indication we get that, oh, God didn't intend them to conquer all those nations. He was going to test them uh, by leaving those nations there to see if they, you know, it's, it's easy to follow God when everything's good, right? When everything's going your way to be thankful and all this. But God says, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make the, you know, it's not going to be easy. I'm going to leave some obstacles in your way. Does that ever, do we, do we see any of that today? Do you, you know, everything goes smooth for everybody? Rare, not, not for me, although we, we have it pretty good. Living where we do and when we do, uh, we, we, live in incredible wealth, incredible comfort. But God says, "Be aware. I'm going to test you. I'm going to see if you're really if you're really serious about following me." So again, it's kind of interesting that the whole this this is the story of the whole book. If you know you you, you can read the read these verses and you've read Joshua. <laughs> but we're going to look at a little bit. We're going to look at three judges. Go and look at three judges. What happens in chapter three, we see the division of the land, you know, the northern tribes get the north, and uh, Judah and the other folks get the south. And we're told about the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. So what about Othniel? These, these are sort of minor judges, there aren't, uh, we'll next, uh, we'll get into Deborah and uh, some, some judges uh, that are a little more interesting, but we'll do these three today. So, again, think back of what we just read, the summary. Israel works, worships the Baals and Asherahs, uh, and, and this particular phrasing that God sells Israel to this king who we won't pronounce. So they're, they suffer for eight years, and finally, after eight years, they decide, you know, we're. You know, it's kind of like they did to god when things got bad and they say, we wish we could have been back in egypt now they're saying well we wish we had jehovah back we wish you know so again and and this always the phrase kind of phrase god raises up a judge it's othniel son of kenaz uh and, and an interesting comment here the spirit of the lord came on othniel in other words god somehow motivates him and tells him you know you need you need to to take take charge of israel so the, we're told the statement, he judges Israel, goes out to war, he's victorious, and the land has rest for 40 years and he dies. Again, not a real exciting story, but that's, you know, that, that's, that's kind of typical of one of these judge cycles. So that's Othniel. So we're okay for a while. Yes? And just a connection to the things you were saying before, his uncle was Caleb. Right, yeah, King, yeah I'm sorry, I, didn't, I meant to mention that, Kenaz is Caleb's nephew. Yeah. Or Kenaz is Caleb's brother. Yeah, yeah. Now here's here's the one. This this is a, this is a great story. I'd love to teach this to junior high boys. Yeah, this is, this is kind of the story. So, again, Israel turns against God. Now it's going to be Moab. And 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 again, I always like to look and see how it's phrased. God before God sold Israel to King Cush, whatever. And now God is going to strengthen Moab and they're going to make an alliance with the Ammonites, Amalekites, and again, serve for 18 years, and the Israelites cry out to God, to Jehovah. He raises up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjamite, and he's a left-handed man. So remember that? Now here's the story. Here's our friend old Ehud, and he's, we're told for some reason that he's left-handed. So sneaky. he's a sneaky guy. I've always heard the were ambidextrous. <laughs> <laughs> that's somewhere. All right, I'll, I'll take. I that's they're the temple guards. Okay, well, I, I, I that's the new one on me. I'll. Okay. All right. I'm gonna find it. you. You can. In, in, okay. So anyway, Ahud, he's a deliverer. He's a left-handed man. Now the Israelites, if if you're serving a king, one of the things you have to do is send tribute. So they send, so Ehud says, I'll take the tribute. They make something before he go makes a sword, double edged eight, double edged eighteen inches long, and he straps it to his right thigh. So he goes and he gives he, he gives the tribute to, to, to the king and uh, I don't know if we're giving the king King Eglon, yeah, I'm sorry for that. So he goes to give the king Eglon and we're told that Eglon was a very fat man, so anyway, he gives the tribute and, and Uh, The people who who had hauled all the goods, they're sent away. And things are about over. And Ahu gets to, we're told, the sculpted stones near Gilgal. It may have been some idols or something, but whatever. He gets there and he turns back and goes back and says, I have a secret message for you, king. The king says, silence. And everybody leaves and they go up on the roof chamber. And he comes over and here's King Ahud. You're not fat, Terry. He comes and you th- you know, he probably says, come here, I've got a message for you. And he brings him in close, and he goes yeah. <laughs> And he sticks that 18-inch knife right in his stomach. And the guy, Ahud is so fat that that 18-inch knife disappears inside, or Eglon, is so fat. It disappears inside, and then he messes his pants. Told the dirt, my translation says the dirt came out. Uh, but that, that's what happened, he defecated as, as he died. So here he's, he's assassinated King Eglon. He sneaks, he goes says, he went into the vestibule, closed the doors of the roof chamber on him and locked them. And so he's gone, he's left. So now, read this, when he's gone, the servants came, they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and he thought, he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. You see that irony here <laughs> the we're told that he soiled himself and hear the servant saying well maybe he's going to the bathroom well yeah he's he's gone and finally it says they were so they waited until they were embarrassed when they still did open the doors of the roof chamber they took the key and opened them and there was their lord lying dead on the floor so and mean ehud escaped passed behind beyond the sculptured stones when he arrived he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim Israelites went down from the hill country they go on their so god has given the moabites into your hand and they're victorious and Israel is once again delivered so it's always interesting that the stories we get you know this here's a political assassination basically that's carried out by by Ehud on King Eglon and it's told in a very kind of scatological way you know the the fact that you know, we're, we're told about him soiling himself, we have the servants asking. You know, all these stories are not PG rated in the Bible. <laughs> and again, we'll, we'll, when we get to Samson, they're certainly not. You know, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. We've only got three weeks left. So that's, that's our second judge. And then the final one we'll talk is, is one verse, Shamgar. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines and the ox-goat. He too delivered Israel. That's all we're told about him. So next week, we're going to go on. We're going to get into Deborah and uh, uh, another kind of go- <laughs> we're going to have another gory story next week. Uh, another, another person is going to get killed in an unpleasant way. But uh, these, are, these are the stories you know, that are written down to show that God, in whatever way, is going to take care of his people if they'll turn to him. But they have to turn first. Jim. George, uh, uh, yeah, this is a, I'm not an Old Testament person at all, so I, I love reading the stories, but I don't think about it that much. I'm trying to put into context for me what was the role of a judge. He appears to be part king, part general, part leader, uh, yeah. or she... He yeah, Deborah, but I... it's. I struggle with that too. I mean, obviously here we, we we've got military men. Yeah. These first few judges, to me, if I were going to just describe them by what we're told, I, they seem to me to be more generals. You know, they're 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 going to lead the people in an uprising against their oppressors. They're going to take over. But when we go on, you know, the fact they're called judges, I think they do they do make decisions. They're kind of. In this transition from tribal people to a king is the way i see them and so they're going to start fulfilling some of those roles and indeed when we get to the last of judges you actually see some hereditary judges for the first time in other words someone's son becomes judge after him which which sounds a whole lot like a king so yeah paul i think just my my thinking i think moses and joshua were the first judges yeah and Moses gives you a a real strong picture uh-huh. of what a judge yeah. is, and so does Joshua. And and I think probably those are Samuel may I would see Samuel as the last, the, the final judge before the kings. And and, and again, you're going to see a, a wide variety of activities these folks are are carrying out. But generally, in in the book of Judges, they're always going to deliver the nation from somebody else. They do other things as well, but the action that's called out in the book that, that the author wants us to see is these, God ra- raises up this person and they deliver his people. That's that's the message that comes out. Some of them are real, really smart, some of them like Samson, not so much. So thank you very much. And uh, say so we've got three more weeks and then Terry and, and uh, Hilton are gonna be teaching 1st and 2nd Samuel here, so. Romping through the Old Testament. Thank you. Good comments.